This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning. So today we celebrate uh, Siddhartha Gautama, his, his birth, uh, the Buddha. And traditionally in Japan, this uh, celebration is done on April 8th, um, no doubt having to do with the coming of spring. Uh, and so in Rochester, where I spent most of my training, it wasn't done until May because it was still snowing in April most of the time. Um, and uh, the, the celebrations up there were included lots of families and kids and balloons and the parade. It was just kind of over the top. Um, so it was a great time to be outside. So as some of you may recall from the legend of the, the Buddha in his birth, he was, he was born, they say, some 20, now they used to say 2,500 years ago, but it's, it's getting close to 2,600 years ago um, in northern India. And he was born, um, well, before he was born, his mother, Queen Maya, had a dream that an elephant came to her in the middle of the night, a six-tusked elephant, and came in through her side. Uh, And voila, (laughs) nine or so months later, uh, the Buddha appeared. And as it was a custom in the time in India, that um, a a uh, pregnant woman would go back to her parents' house to have the child um, because it was uh, a more caring environment. So she did that. She headed back, and on her way back, um, she started to go into labor. So she had to stop in what is known as Lumbini, the Lumbini Gardens, and... As legend has it, she grabbed a, a tree branch and out comes uh, Siddhartha Gotama. And he right away takes seven steps and points one hand to the heavens and one hand to the earth and says, Above the heavens and below the earth, I alone am the world honored one. Now, when people first hear that, I alone am the world honored one, it can sound um, a little grandiose. (laughs) Uh, I hate to use the word narcissistic. Uh, (laughs) But certainly, um, in a way, um, self-preoccupied. The great master Yunmen... uh, Chan, Chan, um, master, Chinese Zen uh, master from the Tang dynasty said, 
about this scene of the Buddha's birth. He said, if I were a witness of this scene, I would have knocked him to death at a single stroke and given his flesh to dogs for food. This would have been my contribution to peace and harmony of the world. In other words, no need for show-offs in Zen. No need to... No need for pomp and circumstance. And yet each each year in Zen centers, Buddhist centers across the globe, this time of year we do kind of have some fun. So what are we to make of this statement, I alone am the world honored one? Of course, parents know this quite well. How... Each child is the center of the universe. Each child, not only to the parents, but to themselves, are the center of the universe. One of my teachers, Zen teachers, used to go to um, a playground right down the road from the Zen temple to watch the kids play. And I've said this before, and he said actually he had to stop because it was kind of creepy, he thought, for the neighbors to see this Zen guy watching kids play. Um, but, but no, I mean, even he was, he, his, his intention was just to see their freedom, how they could let go and just 100% dive into whatever they were doing without self-preoccupation, without self-concern losing themselves, playing dolls or coming down the slide or or what have you. That airplane, you know, that that model airplane becomes the real thing as we all can remember from our childhoods. Infants, even more than young children, have this innocence. Research has shown us now um, that uh, they've, they've put these EKG caps on babies and shown them cards or things, uh, which, to an adult, immediately lights up the visual cortex in the brain. And to some extent, this is true with infants. But what's interesting is that not a, 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 oftentimes the visual cortex remains dormant, and instead the audio, cor- audio cortex lights up, or uh, other parts of the brain light up. And what they believe is happening is that infants um, are still, of course, in the process of wiring their brains. And so everything is a jumble in there. And they have a kind of synesthesia. Uh, I think people know what that is, where you know, people here may experience that occasionally, where you uh, can taste something you hear, or smell something that you see. In other words, there's this great crossing of the senses. And so in infants, um, their senses are much less defined. 
the world is just open. There's a famous Zen dialogue that occurred between a monk and a master. And the master's name is Joshu, or in his Chinese name, Chao Cho. So a monk asked Joshu, does a newborn baby possess the six senses or not? And Joshu said, it's like a ball bouncing on a swift flowing water. It's like a ball bouncing on swift flowing water. That monk later asked another master, what was the meaning of when Joshu said, uh, it's like a ball bouncing on swift flowing water? And the master said, moment by moment, it flows on without stopping. Babies don't have that constant inner dialogue that we have. The ability to reflect, the ability to consider, that conscious awareness that we have. They're driven by simply whatever is coming in. Their smell, taste, touch, sound. And they're developing that sixth sense, as we call it in Buddhism, that sense of thinking. So the question becomes, when does the, when does a newborn baby acquire that sense of a self? When does a baby become an I? One month? Two months? Six months? When does the narrative that we're all familiar with, this narrative of me, really begin? And what existed before that narrative? What was there before you, as you think of you? If a baby has no separate sense of self, what is the world? I alone am the world-honored one. Nothing else. All one, alone, all one. But we all know that as children grow, they do begin to lose that sense of freedom. And I imagine it's hard for parents to see that happen as that self-preoccupation creeps in. I've told this before, but I used to be an art teacher, and it was very clear somewhere between second and third grade when students would come back from the summer. And before they, actually before they left, first, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade, they could draw anything. They could paint anything. And then somewhere in that time frame, they come back to school, third grade or so, and then it's, um, you'd say, draw me a horse. Oh, I don't know how. I don't know what, what to do. I don't, it's not going to look right. What happened? No doubt as Siddhartha Gotama, the Buddha-to-be to grew, he also began to develop this sense of self. And we know that his father, the uh, king, 
Sudana, uh, did everything he could to keep the Buddha from seeing the world as it is so that he would be protected from this world of, of injustice, of suffering, of craving, but he couldn't do it. It was not to be. How could it be? I think many of us with our complex lives and our histories long for that more innocent time, that time before that self-preoccupation gelled, before it turned into me. Perhaps the monk in this story who asked Joshu, does even the baby, or does even a baby have the six senses? Perhaps he was wondering the same thing. I want that innocence back. As we grow, we get heavier and heavier, not so much in weight necessarily, but, um, but with our history and our experience. And we long for those days, those, that first kiss, that first uh, time driving your car, remember that? First, the list of firsts go on and on. And I think there's a part of us that wants to go back, and yet we know we can't. Our growth as individuals is necessary. If we remained like babies, of course, we wouldn't know what we were experiencing and we couldn't help others. We wouldn't be able to work for a certain purpose or meaning in life. Many people that come to a practice like this, Zen practice, wish to get back to that innocence. Another way of putting it is to feel more fresh, more alive, more present with people and with ourselves. Because we feel a lack. We feel like we're lacking something, like we've left something behind. I remember meditating when I was first into Zen many years ago. I went to a Zen group and I talked with a lady and I asked her why she was there. And she said, oh, I've been... I took LSD when I was in college and I've been trying to have that experience again through, through meditation. <laughs> Not the best way. But Joshu says, remember, Joshu says it's like a ball bouncing on the swift on swift flowing water. We can't interrupt the flow of the river. We can't interrupt the flow of our life. I once went camping in the winter with a friend of mine when I was in college, and um, we got out into the Virginia wilderness, and it snowed overnight pretty heavily, and when I woke up in the morning, the trail was gone. And so we didn't really know how to get out of there. And so we, we did our best to get back to the river that we um, knew was in the right direction. And we 
really looked at each other and said, well, we have no other choice. I don't remember exactly why, but we had no other choice but to cross it with these back, you know, these backpacking backpacks on. And I remember wading out into the stream into this ice-cold water and getting close to the middle and then swept off my feet, landed on my backpack in the river, unable to fight that current. And finally righted myself and then crawled <laughs> crawled across. Luckily we had just a few miles back to the uh, to the cars. But the thing is the current in our life is strong. And many of us fight that current. Many of us want to fight the current. We either fight it by going upstream into the future, or we fight it going downstream, or however you want to, <laughs> upstream, downstream. Um, or we fight it by going to our past. We either want to jump downstream miles and miles ahead in our life, we want to get to the good stuff, or we want to return to where we believe the good stuff really was. But the problem is the river of our life just flows naturally. And so Zen practice really is about noticing and recognizing the ways that we try to fight the current. The ways we try to stand up in the middle of that river and fight. We can never be a newborn again. We can only be what we are now. Despite our complexity, despite our adulthood, we can experience that freedom of a newborn. This is the promise of Zen practice if we dive into it. That self-preoccupation can fade. It doesn't need to dominate us. And in this way, we can be, as Joshu suggests, like a ball flowing rapidly on a river. Unencumbered. Yuan Wu, who was a Song Dynasty Zen master, commented on this story, and he said... Although a newborn baby is equipped with the six consciousnesses through his or though his eyes can see and his ears can hear he doesn't yet discriminate among the six sense objects at this time he knows nothing of good and evil long and short right and wrong or gain and loss a person who studies the path, path must become again like an infant. Then praise and blame, success and fame, unfavorable circumstances and favorable, favorable environments, none of these can move her. Though her eyes see form, she is the same as a blind person. Though her ears hear sound, she is the same as a deaf person. She is like a fool, like an idiot. Her mind is motionless, 
as motionless as Mount Sumeru. Just to clarify, this reference to being a fool or an idiot (laughs) is not a put-down. In Zen, it's not a put-down. It's the highest praise to truly be a fool, to not care in one way, and to care deeply in another, of course. But not to care about the way we come across to be open. We need to be careful not to misconstrue some of the meaning here. It's easy to think that in Zen practice we will stop functioning as a fully human, fully human adult. People have this fear when they go deep into meditation. They, they're afraid that they'll lose, if they let go into the practice, they'll lose who they are in some fundamental way. Well, they do, we do, but not in the way we think. Nothing to fear. Instead, what happens is we learn to respond rather than just react. We learn to flow with circumstances. And what we also learn is to stop gripping the shores of the river in all those myriad ways that we do that. We simply flow. There's no notion of self, no notion of other. We become the whole universe. The whole universe is us. And in that way, it's I alone am the world honored one. So in just a few minutes, we'll move into the ceremony. And I'll go over that just in a few minutes, how what we're going to do. But as you do, try to enter into it completely with no thought. Just the chanting. Just the pouring of tea all over the Buddha. Just the offering of incense. And in that way you will flow. And you will become the world honored one. So, why don't we stop there and we will uh, go over just a few details of the ceremony since uh, a number of people haven't done something like this before. What we'll do is the Han will begin to play in just a minute which is the wooden block, and people can rise. You can leave your chant books um, on your seats. And then we'll start standing with our hands palm to palm towards the altar, angled towards the altar. The first chant that we do is the three treasures. Um, I'll intone them, and I'll say the three treasures, and people will say, I take refuge in Buddha. And then we'll do a prostration, just like I did.